This is an ABC podcast. Just a warning for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, this story includes the names of people who have died. I walk in and I'm sitting at the back of the room and I thought to myself, wow, we're really here. We're really fighting over this. We're being dragged through the Supreme Court like by police. When will this end? The judge sits back down on her stand and, and I was like, this is it. And I sat in the box for the first time in my life. So I raised my hand and I wasn't scared, but I was just like, let's just get this over and done with. Are we running the protest or not? Legally or illegally, it doesn't matter because we're going through with it anyway. Time did stand still because all I was thinking about was, is this judge going to be on the right side of history? I'm Elizabeth Kulas. Welcome to Days Like These. The person who's sitting in the courtroom that day is a 24-year-old law student. Her name is Taylor Gray, and she's sitting in the stand to defend something she deeply believes in. Because in July 2020, Taylor organised a Black Lives Matter rally in Newcastle to protest against the systemic oppression of First Nations people in this country. And this is all happening in those first incredibly heightened days of the COVID lockdowns. Let's just say that New South Wales police were not on board. So Taylor had to take her challenge all the way to the state Supreme Court. And today, to tell that story, we're breaking the usual days like these mould to bring you Taylor Gray herself. Taylor, thank you for being here hosting this episode and for sharing your story with our reporter, Anthony Scully. Thank you for having me. It's a privilege to be here. Are you ready to roll? I'm ready to go. Okay, take it away. Yamadu Morang. Are you well? Hello, my name is Taylor Gray and I come from the Wiradjuri Nation out of Dubbo in New South Wales. First of all, I need to tell you about something that happened when I was a kid. Throughout my high school years, we used to travel across to Bathurst where I played for the Central Coast Mariners soccer side and it was situated in between the two towns and I remember my my dad looking up over the hill where there was this house situated and it was quite a large house. That's it, daughter, that's where it is. And I said, Dad, what? Where's what? He's like, that's where I was taken. And then we just stopped and we stopped for about, uh, you know, a couple of seconds to reflect and what felt like a moment of eternity because we both knew what happened there, the abuse, the mental, physical... All, all the abuse that happened there. And time just stopped. How do you explain a stolen generation, a, you know, a whole cruel, inhumane treatment of black people? How do you explain that to a child? Will you explain it in a sugar-coated way? I've always been a curious person. Ever since I was young, I was always a curious, you know, little girl. I always wanted to know more. And I think that's what got me, you know into higher education because I wanted to know more about what happened to my people. Why are we living in poverty? Why are we homeless? Why are we dying at such young age? Why are we always in contact with the police? And I wanted to know all the answers to this. So that was my reaction. He doesn't talk about it at all and I've only managed to get a couple of stories out of him of what's actually happened, but we both know. And that's when I asked him, I said, what was it like? And he said, no, it wasn't, wasn't good. It wasn't good, Dort. And I said, oh, Dad, I'm so sorry. Weeks later, I said, what was your education like? 
He said, no, I didn't like it. You know, we had to sit at the back of the classroom, blacks to the back. And it just, it stuck with me forever. And, and yeah, that's why I sit at the front of the classroom because he didn't have the right to sit at the front. So I was like, I'm going to start reclaiming the space back. I love learning, but it wasn't all smooth sailing for me in high school either. But before going into my legal studies class, there was this terrible smell before we walked in. We were going into this little classroom and my teacher, who was white, she turned around and said, oh, this class smells like the Aboriginal studies class. I was so heartbroken because I was like, what does that mean? And majority of the people who took the Aboriginal studies class were Aboriginal. You know, her response was, no, no, I didn't mean it like that. I didn't mean it like that. I said, well, how did you mean it? We had a talk after and I remember the head history teacher came in and said, Taylor, like, I understand where you're coming from. And that was the first time I turned around and said, no, you don't understand because you are not black. How do you understand where I'm coming from? When you get these little snar comments that build up over time, you become so disengaged with the education system and you're like, I actually don't want to do this. I don't feel safe here. People aren't talking safely about my people and you leave. But I still had some big dreams. In year 11, I was one of the recipients for an Indigenous scholarship and I remember being interviewed and one of the, one of the journalists asked, where do you see yourself in five years? And I said, oh, I'm either going to have an Olympic gold medal <laughs> or I'm going to be a lawyer. Aboriginal studies, English, history, I, I, I'm, I'm a lover of history, but the only subject I failed in both year 11 and 12, I'm talking um, exams, I'm talking assessments, it was legal studies. And I thought, I'm not smart enough to do law, who am I kidding? But some part of me always liked the idea of being a lawyer, sticking it to the man. I applied for Sydney University and I applied for Newcastle University and a couple of others, I think it might have been Armadale, but Newcastle was the only one to come back to me and say, hey, like, we've got this awesome Indigenous Pathways program called Yipug. So Yipug is an awobical word for pathway. And I was like, wow, this is great. Higher education, university, like the world is mine. So the Biraban building is this amazing building that houses the Wallatooka Institute at the University of Newcastle. It's named after Biraban, who was a leader of the awobical people. He's one of the greatest Aboriginal scholars of the 19th century. That's where I learnt the language of the oppressor. We had that perspective from black academics and I was just so engaged because I was like, wow, I'm learning so much here. It's sticking with me and I don't feel unsafe. And we learnt the truth about history, but not only did we learn about, you know, the disadvantages that we face through homelessness, you know, incarceration, all of those things, uh, you know, mortality rates, health statistics, but we also learnt about our strengths, our society. That really empowered me because, you know, all through Year 12, we, we've got this myth that we were hunter-gatherers, but we were so much more. We were engineers. We were scientists, we were architects. So one of my lecturers at uni takes us on a field trip and it's a real turning point for me. The person who influenced that was Dr Charlene Leroy Dyer, who was a First Nations woman. She was my lecturer and she said, oh, class, by the way, we're going to finish early today and we're going to head in town for a protest on a Wobbicool country near the foreshore for the forced closures of Aboriginal communities. That's what we're protesting about. And it was the first protest I've ever been to. 
The air was just intensified because of everything that was happening over in the Northern Territory. And it was Charlene who took us there. There were these speeches there. A lot of blackfellas, they were really empowering because they're like, this isn't right. Like, let's get up and do something about it. And so at the beginning, we set off to march. I was right at the front of the march and I was holding up the banner and I was looking around. I was like, wow, that protest gave me a match and, and fuel and it lit up in my stomach. And I was like, this is what I want to do. And that's what I did. So five years go by and I'm in my final year of studying law. It's June the 6th, 2020, and I'm at the first Black Lives Matter rally in Newcastle. There's people as far as you I can see. Most people are wearing face masks because of COVID-19. There's a large police presence. And suddenly the rally organiser, she hands me the microphone. Go and buy you and Yandere, Taylor Gray. I would like to just acknowledge the Awami call and the Warramai peoples. This will always be your land. Look around, although this city is masked in buildings, this will always be Aboriginal land. I'm supposed to be preparing for my, lead, my final year law exams. And they, they probably advised me not to swear, but fuck that. Hundreds of people are carrying signs saying, I can't breathe in tribute to George Floyd, who'd been killed by police on a Minneapolis street. This cause is blowing up all around the world and it's happening here in Australia too. There are banners with the names of my people who have died right here in police custody. David Dungay Jr., Rebecca Ma, Tenya Day, TJ Hickey, the list goes on and on. So these rallies are getting heat from the authorities. Plenty are being cancelled for what they say are because of the COVID risk. That Supreme Court decision yesterday was a representation of the ongoing colonial violence we are continuously subjected to. If the system couldn't stand a few days of protesting, then they'll definitely hate the 250 years of oppression and discrimination. We've been talking about this forever and the whole thing that happened with George Floyd, you know, there was a global awareness on what was happening. It just amplified Indigenous people's voices here because, you know, we're a minority here. You know, we were angry. Then the protest reaches one of the Newcastle's busiest intersections. I think it may have been Brother Boy Lyle Munro. You know, he put the megaphone up and he said, Everybody get on the ground and put your hands behind your back. And everybody did it. It was just this domino effect. We can't breathe! We can't breathe! It was really emotional. And, you know, we're chanting, I can't breathe, which were the last words of Dungari warrior David Dungay. David Dungay spoke those words too before, right here on this soil, before he lost his life. We felt what George Floyd and his community were going through because our mob were going through it as well. And it resonated with, with everybody there because everybody felt that moment of vulnerableness on their stomachs, hands behind their back, surrounded by police. And that moment at the intersection, it's all over the news. Tonight, Australia's Black Lives Matter moment. Tens of thousands of people take to the streets, expressing solidarity with the movement in America and demanding justice for Aboriginal Australians here.
And rallies were also held in regional New South Wales. Thousands took to the streets in the state's towns and cities, many of them masked and some with children in tow. In Newcastle, protesters laid face down, chanting the catch cry for the global movement. It was tense. The police didn't like it and people on social media hated it. They said it was too risky because of COVID and they thought we were being selfish. Why was it so important to organise another rally, a second rally? Because we had the numbers, we had the support. And when you have numbers, you have media coverage. When you have media coverage, you have people listening to our concerns. And so we took advantage of it. We're like, we need to do this. Listen to us. So people around me start organising another rally. It's less than a month away and they want me to be a part of it. But I'm juggling so much. I've got a massive law exam worth 50% of my grade, the same week as the second rally. I'm in my last year of law, so I have to pass this subject. Anyone else would probably walk away right now, but I can't. So I applied to the police for the rally permit and they knock it back. It's 5pm and I have until 9am the next morning to mount a case about how we'll manage the public health risk. It's about a week from the protests at this point. I'm thinking, what am I going to do? So that night, I cold called this Sydney barrister, Felicity Graham. She took on the case for the Sydney Black Lives Matter protest and she won. So I thought I'd start there. Hello? I said, hi, Felicity. I'm organising a protest. I've been knocked back. I need reasons. What's good? Help us out. (laughs) And she's like, okay. We were up all night trying to figure out, you know, what are we going to do? What are we going to put in this form? You're pulling all nighter. Tell me more about Sydney, this instructing solicitor. We were up talking and she's like, okay, what do you want to do? What, What evidence do you have to submit? And I said, I'm holding a workshop with the marshals on, you know, how we can run this protest safely. She's like, perfect. Send me that, please. Send me a screenshot. Send me photos of the park. Sometimes we'll have a three-way chat with Felicity. And she's like, okay, send photos of the grounds. And after all that, we get the submission in on time. But the police knock it back again. And I've got some big thinking to do. Because the next person I hear from, it's the Assistant Police Commissioner of New South Wales, Max Mitchell. If you go ahead with the protest, we're going to take you to the Supreme Court. We're going to get an order for you not to run the protest. And if we do that, you're going to have to pay for our legal cost. An instant heart drop moment for me because university students don't have a lot of money as it is, you know. Felicity is taking this case on pro bono. I read that email and I was just like, holy, this is really happening. And I thought, wow. There is a lot at stake here for me financially. Like even though it was a public interest matter, there was still, if it's a public interest matter, they won't hit you with a cost order, but there's still that potential that it could. And Felicity told me that. And I read it and my heart sank. You know, my my heart jumped out of my chest and ran around the block. (laughs) And I thought, what am I going to do? We're sovereign people. This is our land. Why do we have to go to the police, knock on the oppressor's door and ask when we protest against their oppression? Like, it's bizarre. Anyway, I jump on the phone to my family and people in the community and they reassured me. If push comes to shove, they say the community will help to raise the money somehow. That's how important it is to them and to me. I just said, the hell with it. Let's do it. We're more likely to die in custody 
right now than anything else. Like, I don't care about the odds of a cost order. Why should I care about that when we're dying? That means we've got to take this fight all the way to the Supreme Court. The hearing's a week away, the rally is the day after that, and I'm still studying for my huge exam. So you know what that means. It's another all-nighter with Felicity and Sydney. Another legal team all-nighter. And the pressure's on, because it's going to be me who's giving evidence up on that stand. So I was like, oh my God, I just did evidence this semester and I'm learning about this and I'm doing it. The time was ticking and we're up at two o'clock in the morning preparing for this affidavit. I had to know it front to back. All I was thinking about was, if I don't nail this, it's going to fall through. You know, we draw to the conclusion, Sydney and Felicity, they were like, okay, do you got that? After reading all that, I was just like, yeah, guys, I've got this, okay. I was like, I just want to go to bed. I've got to get up at like six and travel down for the court case at nine in Sydney, peak hour traffic. And next morning, it was a bit of a nightmare trip. My car broke down at the servo on the drive down to Sydney. But thankfully, I ran into a sister girl there. So I left my car there and she gave me a lift down. Somehow we make it to the Supreme Court in Sydney on time. I walk in and I'm sitting at the back of the room and I've never been in the Supreme Court before and I thought to myself, wow, we're really here. You've got, you know, barristers kitted out in their suits and, you know, I'm a strong Wiradjuri woman but I come, you know, from a a line of poverty. You know, low education, socioeconomic background and I'm looking around I was like, holy, this, am I meant to be here? Maybe I am. And Felicity turns to me and says, oh, Taylor, I think it's your turn to go up next time, so just be ready. And I was like, what does that even mean? What, I thought I was ready, but, like, what are they going to ask me? Like, what, how do I prepare for this? And she's like, oh, I just, just, just speak your truth. The judge sits back down on her stand and the witness box is to the left. The barristers are sitting apart from one another and you've got the press that are sitting at the back taking notes... And then you hear Felicity say, I I call Taylor to the stand. So while this is going on, there on the big screen in front of me is the face of the Assistant Police Commissioner, Max Mitchell. And next thing, the police barrister is asking me, do you realise you're putting the public at risk? And I was like, yes, I'm aware of that. He really belittled the cause because he's like asking all those questions about the health and safety. And I thought, well, wait a minute. We're also worried about black lives. Can we bring that up as well? But we've prepared for this. It's all in the affidavit. The momentum that has been gained recently in Australia in relation to calls for justice for Indigenous people means the timing of the event is crucial. Whilst usually our cries as Indigenous people have remained unheard, we now seem to have the ease and the support of the broader community. But we cannot achieve real accountability on issues of racism, police brutality, deaths in custody, the mass incarceration of our people without continuing to have our voices heard loud and clear in public. And after I read that out, the prosecution wants my words struck out. They say it's opinion, not fact. They were arguing, why can't they just have this event online? Why can't they have this in a month's time when the COVID has settled down? And if that wasn't in evidence, the judge wouldn't be able to consider that, hey, timing is really of the issue here. It's really of importance. It's critical. Both barristers gave their closing statements and the judge said, "Okay, I'm going to take a break now. And when I come back, I'm going to come back with my decision. Time did stand still because all I was thinking about was, is this judge going to be on the right side of history? It's late Friday, Arvo. 
the protest is due to start in Newcastle on Sunday. After what seems like forever, the judge comes back with a ruling. The timing of the protest is also of significance. Miss Gray's evidence is that the momentum generated by the death of George Floyd has provided an opportunity for those who wish to affect social change in Australia to make their voices heard. To deprive such groups of the opportunity to demonstrate in an authorised public assembly would inevitably lead to resentment and alienation if the public risk concerns did not warrant it. For these reasons, I am satisfied that the public interest in free speech and freedom of association outweigh the public health concerns and that the order sought by the plaintiff ought be refused. After considering the evidence and the submissions by the parties, I am not satisfied that the participants, as long as the Assembly is held in substantial accordance with the notice, ought be deprived of the protections otherwise afforded by the Act. She says the protest is authorised. Miss Gray, you're free to run the protest. And I jumped up and the sister girl looked at me and we, we shed a tear and we hugged each other. And we both said, like, well done, sis, good work, let's do this. On the steps outside the Sydney courtroom, reporters are asking me in Sydney what it all means. The decision means that the rally is is not unauthorised and that they are free to attend as participants uh, were going to originally in the first place and that there is no risk of move-on orders uh, to be made by the police, um, which was what we feared uh, initially. So this is really a, a successful outcome for participants who attend the rally and they don't need to fear the uh, risk of perhaps over-excessive police force and use of tasering or pepper sprays and the arrests that can come out of that as a consequence. It is an authorised uh, assembly and um, the participants should feel free to attend it as such. We're really happy with the court's outcome and we're pleased that they are on the right side of history. My life, my very essence, my black essence is on the line. And before you know it, I'm at the rally and I'm back on that megaphone. Here are 10 points of action. Number one, abolish the youth prison. Majority of those are not solely my words. These are what mob are saying all over the country and we've been saying it for ages. And because I had that platform, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to amplify their voices and say, okay, this is what we need to do. Because it's not me telling the world what we need to do. We are, you know, we're a collective society and we do things together. Number four, charge, convict and sentence police officers and correctional officers responsible for the murders who have watched black people die in custody, who have been onlookers. Charge them all. Abolish the law enforcement's power and responsibility act that allows these police officers to harm black bodies. The difference, the difference between an an unauthorised and an authorised event, all it meant was that police had extra powers to harm us. And that's all that meant. It's our democratic right to protest. We use that second rally to call for a heap of changes to laws that govern how Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are treated. Big changes. Ones that will make people's lives better and fairer. Number 10. Last but not least. Come to the table. 
yarn with every nation in this country. And let's talk treaty. So we're on the march, through the streets, and we arrive at this intersection. And I know what to do. And I know it's time. And I said, everybody, I need you to get in a circle. Get in a circle now. I said, I want everybody to remember that even though there are roads here, there are buildings upon buildings, I said, we are still here. We still have our culture, our traditions. And then Treaty just started playing. It was cool, it was, it was wholesome, that's what it was. And, and they got out and they danced and they, you know, they did the brolga, they did the shaker leg, they did the emu. I mean, we have been humiliated for so long for just being black, so to stand there in a circle around white people in the middle of town and do what we, our old people do and be black is just, that is us. Our old people were there with us. I think that's... All of the warriors and my ancestors coming together and speaking through my voice. They're jumping out of my throat. Look at them, like, you know, it's not just me. I am an introverted person. I love my alone time. But in saying that, when things happen to my people in my community, I can become a different person. <laughs> I can get out and I can dance, but I, I don't know. Something, something over, overcame me that day because it's like, I've got no time to be shy. Like, we're leading a revolution here. There's no time for shyness. There's no time for, you know, to sit back and not be courageous. My ancestors were leading me there, like, spiritually. I was connected. People were backing me. Like, if they weren't backing me, they wouldn't be there. <laughs> so I was, I was determined. I wasn't pessimistic. I wasn't optimistic. I was determined. Hey, I completed that exam, by the way, and actually, I'm a lawyer now, and now I'm doing a PhD in Native Title and Economic Theories. So you haven't heard the last from Taylor Gray. And a big thanks to reporter Anthony Scully, who produced this story. Days Like These is usually hosted by Elizabeth Kulas. The lead reporter is Pat Abud. Reporters on this season include Sam Wicks, Belinda Lopez, Anthony Scully, Melanie Tate, Meg Bolton, James Viver, John Chia, and Alicia Sometimes. Our researcher is Tamar Cranswick. Sound design on this episode by Grant Walter. The supervising producers were Tom Wright and Rachel Fountain. Shout out to the First Nations mob, shout out to the Allies for having our back, and shout out to the Wallatooka Institute for nurturing my education. The Days Like These theme song is Ye Na by the Gooch Palms, courtesy of Ratbag Records and BMG. The podcast executive producers are Rachel Fountain and Ian Walker. See you in court, sucker. We'd love it if you'd search for Days Like These in your favourite podcast app and hit follow, why don't you, so you don't miss great episodes like this one. When I finally saw that picture, it was such a shock and it was such a physical response that I had like I kind of went hot all over and a little bit shivery and um, really excited as well because it was like I'd cracked a code finally that had been with me and hanging over me for you, you know more than a decade. A portrait in a gallery thousands of kilometres away opens a portal to an alternate dimension for Jennifer Mills. Well 
325 portals, actually. So what gives a stranger with the same name the power to revive one of Jenny's deepest and most precious memories? Jenny. I'm Jennifer Mills. Jennifer Mills. Hello, I'm Jenny Jennifer Mills. Mills. Hi, my name's Jennifer Mills. Jennifer Mills. Jennifer Mills. Mills. That's next time on Days Like These. And in the meantime, why not try another great ABC podcast like this one? From the team that brought you Finding Drago. This is Finding Desperado. Welcome to a new mystery. Just like the last one, it all begins with a book. The Guinness World Records. After skimming through this glorious golden tome... One record really jumped out at us. A record held by a man claiming to be the world's youngest filmmaker. A record that we believe is fake. Our search for this mysterious director and his world record winning film led us on a bizarre globe-trotting journey across Europe into the underground world of VHS horror movies and of course all over google.com This is a story about trickery, lost films, famous frauds, and possibly fake Guinness World Records. This is Finding Desperado. <laughs> <laughs>